Chapter Fourteen of Abraham Lincoln: A History, Volume Eight. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. Abraham Lincoln: A History, Volume Eight, by John Hay and John George Nicolay. Chapter Fourteen: The Wilderness. General Grant made but a brief visit to the West. Sherman assumed command of the military division of the Mississippi on the 18th of March, and then accompanied the general-in-chief as far as Cincinnati on the road to Washington. Every hour was now important, and valuable time was saved by this long conference on the rail. Besides the great subject of the coming campaign, the two friends and comrades discussed the disposition which should be made of various officers then out of employment. This was a delicate matter, and seemed both to Grant and the government more important than it really was. There were few indispensable men, and the political influence of the more conspicuous was far less than was claimed. There was little embarrassment on the score of rank, as a law passed in 1862 had given to the President the power of appointment of generals to special commands, without regard to the date of their commissions. When Sherman was promoted over the heads of Thomas and Hooker, and McPherson was put in command over Hurlbut, all of these superseded officers acquiesced with patriotic cheerfulness in what, according to the strict rules of the service, seemed an injustice. Others, it is true, were not so self-sacrificing. General Buell, being offered the command of a corps under Sherman, declined to serve under his junior, and was soon after mustered out of the service. Grant was solicited by the friends of Fremont and McClellan to provide them with commands, but this he declined to do, and both resigned during their political campaigns for the presidency. The general-in-chief established his headquarters at Culpeper Courthouse, near the end of March, and spent a month in preparations for the great campaign which he, in common with the entire North, hoped would end the war. He visited Washington several times and had occasional conversations with the President. He says in his memoirs that he was warned, at an early day, by Halleck and Stanton not to communicate his plan of campaign to Mr. Lincoln, but he found this warning as superfluous as it was impertinent. Mr. Lincoln expressly assured him he preferred not to know his purposes. He desired only to learn what means he needed to carry them out, and promised to furnish these to the full extent of his power. He was, however, especially pleased to learn that the new general-in-chief intended to employ the full strength of the army in a simultaneous concerted movement all along the line, which should keep the enemy everywhere employed, and prevent him from concentrating at threatened points. This was the object which the President had striven for in vain through three years of war, this the course which he had urged upon successive generals without effect, and which, in despair of seeing the purposes attained in any other way, he had embodied in his general orders of January 27, 1862. The plan of the lieutenant general, as set forth in his report, was extremely simple. So far as practicable, the armies were to move together, and towards one common center. Banks was to finish his operations in Louisiana, and, leaving a small garrison on the Rio Grande, was to concentrate an army of some 25,000 men, and move on Mobile. Sherman was to move simultaneously with the other armies, General Johnston's army being his objective, and the heart of Georgia his ultimate aim. Siegel, who was in command in the Shenandoah, was to move to the front in two columns, one to threaten the enemy in the valley, the other to cut the railroads connecting Richmond with the southwest. Gilmore was to be brought north with his corps, and in company with another corps, under W. F. Smith, was to form an army under General B. F. Butler to operate against Richmond south of the James. 
lee's army was to be the objective point of meade reinforced by burnside as to the route by which the army of the potomac was to advance grant reserved his decision until just before he started upon his march there were advantages and drawbacks to a move by either flank moving by the right would have led him through a more open and better cultivated country would have brought him into immediate collision with the enemy on a terrain more suitable for field operations and especially better adapted for the use of artillery than that which he would find on the left but the disadvantage of that route was that his line of communication would have been constantly exposed large detachments of troops would have been required to protect alexandria railroad and the depots on it the army could only carry fifteen days rations with them and an enormous covering force would have been required to protect the roads and the trains by which additional supplies would have to be brought a great number of wounded would certainly have to be provided for and this could be much more conveniently managed in a movement to the left on account of the easy access everywhere afforded to water transportation moving by the latter route the line of supply by the railroad could be at once abandoned and short routes of communication opened from the protective flank to navigable waters connected with washington the moral or political advantages and objections to the move by the left flank were also obvious it was sure to be vehemently criticized by all the partisans of mcclellan who insisted that the only rational approach to richmond was on the line of the james and on the other hand the president although refraining from any suggestion to general grant felt that beginning a siege of richmond with lee's army wholly intact and free to move in any direction was thoroughly undesirable and that in a move upon that army overland the constant access by water to our left flank was an advantage not to be lightly thrown away the main consideration in the mind of grant and in this he was sustained by the best minds in the army of the potomac was that the war could not be brought to a close until the power of lee's army was broken that without this even the capture of richmond would not avail that lee was too good a general to shut himself up in the defenses of that city and court the face of pemberton that if he were brought to the neighborhood of richmond without a battle the extension he would naturally give his lines would render their complete envelopment impracticable and that if richmond should be captured while the army of virginia was still strong enough to keep the field it might move southward and continue the war indefinitely a plan of campaign was therefore chosen which should bring the two armies into collision at once on a field at some distance from richmond where troops might be moved in large numbers by either flank and where there might be at least a chance of success in destroying or greatly diminishing the military power of the confederacy before the two antagonists in their deadly grapple should come within sight of the works which guarded the rebel capital no one dreamed of an easy victory there was no road to richmond which would not exact its frightful toll of blood move as we might says general humphreys long continued hard fighting under great difficulties was before us yet no one imagined how many days of desperate battle how many months of leaguer and march there were to be seen before this terrible campaign was to end in the great and final victory the army of the potomac now had a commander whose purpose was clear and definite and whose plan was of archaic simplicity to hammer continuously against the armed force of the enemy and his resources until by mere attrition if in no other way there should be nothing left to him but an equal submission with the loyal section of our common country to the constitution and laws of the land the two armies lay in their entrenchments on both sides of the rapidan the headquarters of general grant were at culpepper courthouse among the main body of his infantry those of lee at orange courthouse 
the army of northern virginia guarded the south bank of the river for eighteen or twenty miles ewell commanding the right half a p hill the left the formidable works on mine run secured the confederate right wing which was further protected by the tangled and gloomy thickets of the wilderness longstreet had arrived from tennessee with two fine divisions and was held in reserve at gordonsville the two armies were not so unequally matched as confederate writers insist the strength of the army of the potomac present for duty equipped on the thirtieth of april was one hundred and twenty two thousand one hundred and forty six this includes the twenty two thousand seven hundred and eight of burnside's ninth corps the army of northern virginia numbered at the opening of this campaign not less than sixty one thousand nine hundred and fifty three while this seems like a great disparity of strength it must not be forgotten that the confederate general had an enormous advantage of position the dense woods and the thickly timbered swamps in which he was to resist the march of the national army were as well known to him as the lines of his own hand and were absolutely unknown to his antagonist even in a successful advance in such a region the lines of the victor become thoroughly broken and the defeated party fighting on his own ground can recover almost as readily as his pursuers both armies were of excellent material the new troops in the national ranks rapidly acquired their education among the seasoned veterans of the army of the potomac and lee's force was a well-tempered blade in his practised hand on both sides the troops had commanders worthy of them the army of the potomac had been thoroughly reorganized and reduced to three corps the second commanded by hancock who had recovered from his wounds received at gettysburg and now came back to complete his record of the most brilliant soldier in action that our army has ever known the fifth which warren led with eminent ability and devotion and the sixth commanded by the beloved and trusted sedgwick burnside with the ninth corps had at first an independent command but this was soon found to be an impracticable arrangement and it was united late in may with the army of meade the cavalry was placed under sheridan who had been brought from the west for that service general grant had not seen pleasanton's meritorious service from chancellorsville to gettysburg but he had seen sheridan in that heroic rush up the slope of missionary ridge and he was much given to trusting the evidence of his own eyes under these five commanders were many already famous who were to win still greater renown before the year was gone humphreys park barlow gibbon burney wright crawford getty gregg j h wilson wilcox griffin ricketts and many for whom even then a welcome was preparing in valhalla among whom the most honored names were those of sedgwick and wadsworth the officers under lee were equally able and experienced longstreet who was taken all around the best subordinate soldier in the confederacy ewell who was always active and trustworthy a p hill who possessed the fullest confidence of his superiors commanded the three infantry corps the cavalry was under the charge of that gay and gallant trooper jeb stuart so soon to go down to a soldier's grave divisions and brigades were led by the men whose courage and conduct had been shown in every field from charleston to susquehanna gordon edward johnson rhodes ramser heth hampton and the young lees on both sides there was the best manhood the brightest intelligence the nation could furnish both sides were equally ready to shed their blood in fair quarrel the wearers of the blue and gray looked with some eagerness to the fading patches of snow on the summits of the blue ridge which they knew would be the signal of firm roads and marching orders and few imagined what a flight of warlike ghosts would rise indignant from those vernal fields and forests on the first days of the opening may 
on the last day of april the president sent this letter to general grant not expecting to see you again before the spring campaign opens i wish to express in this way my entire satisfaction with what you have done up to this time so far as i understand it the particulars of your plan i neither know nor seek to know you are vigilant and self-reliant and pleased with this i wish not to obtrude any constraints or restraints upon you while i am very anxious that any great disaster or capture of our men in great numbers shall be avoided i know these points are less likely to escape your attention than they would be mine if there is anything wanting which it is within my power to give do not fail to let me know it and now with a brave army and a just cause may god sustain you grant who in general seems to have cared little for such things was touched by the generous feeling of the president's letter and answered the next day with unaccustomed warmth of expression your very kind letter of yesterday just received the confidence you express for the future and satisfaction with the past in my military administration is acknowledged with pride it will be my earnest endeavor that you and the country shall not be disappointed from my first entrance into the volunteer service of the country to the present day i have never had cause of complaint have never expressed or implied a complaint against the administration or the secretary of war for throwing any embarrassment in the way of my vigorously prosecuting what appeared to me my duty indeed since the promotion which placed me in command of all the armies and in view of the great responsibility and importance of success i have been astonished at the readiness with which everything asked for has been yielded without even an explanation being asked should my success be less than i desire and expect the least i can say is the fault is not with you we find in the tone of this letter an augury of ultimate victory however long it might be delayed contrast it for an instant with the spirit of those whimpering epistles which mcclellan sent back at every halting-place between the potomac and the james his constant complaint that he was not supported his fantastic exaggeration of the enemy's numbers his persistent understatement of his own he had been treated as well as grant had been he outnumbered his adversary more than two to one he had as good an army as grant johnston had no better than lee so far as intellect and knowledge of a soldier's business were in question there had been no change for the better on either side lee was as able as johnston grant was far from being so accomplished and officers mcclellan but the incalculable change that had now come to the army of the potomac was in the will and temperament of the man who was henceforth to lead it with whatever errors or imperfections at least with manly and invincible energy through unimaginable toil and slaughter to victory and peace promptly at the time appointed soon after midnight on the fourth of may the army of the potomac started on its final march to richmond sheridan with two cavalry divisions led the two vast columns of infantry torbert with another division guarding the rear in the darkness of the night five bridges were thrown across the rapidan which was two hundred feet wide hancock crossed at eli's ford and moved out to the familiar battlefield of chancellorsville warren took the fifth corps over at germana ford and marched out to the wilderness tavern where his road crossed the turnpike which runs from orange to fredericksburg parallel to the plank road between the same points a mile or more to the south the cavalry threw out reconnaissances in every direction to left and right to front and even to the rear hancock reached chancellorsville at ten in the morning and warren who had further to march established himself at the tavern at two both corps had made a good day's march 
and it was not thought expedient to push them further until the great trains should come up. Grant, like Hooker the year before, had made the first stage of his momentous journey with perfect success. Another day would bring him through the tangled and gloomy wilderness into the more open ground which lay to the south and west of it. It is idle to conjecture what he would have done if he had made that march unmolested, for neither then nor ever after was he to traverse that ill-famed wood, though rivers of fraternal blood were to flow in the effort to penetrate its eastern salvage. Hancock and Warren were ordered to move forward the next morning, the one to Shady Grove, the other to Parker's store. Sedgwick to march to Wilderness Tavern, and Burnside, who was already moving with the greatest celerity from Manassas, was ordered to continue by forced marches until he joined the rest of the army. But, rapidly as Grant was moving, Lee was deciding and acting with equal energy. He has left behind him no statement of the theories or motives which governed his action on this occasion, and General Grant may possibly be right in claiming that his movement was a surprise to the Confederate general. But the moment his signal officers informed him of the movement of the Army of the Potomac to his right, he acted with a decision and swiftness to which we find no parallel in his history. Realizing that the wilderness was, in itself, an entrenchment to him, he launched his two Army Corps, Ewell along the Turnpike and Hill on the Plank Road, with such dispatch that by nightfall on the 4th they were halfway through the wilderness, ready to strike in the morning at the right flank of their moving enemy. A staff officer of General Lee says he was full of buoyant confidence at breakfast on the morning of the fifth expressing his gratification that his new adversary had put himself exactly in hooker's predicament he relied upon the friendly aid of the thickets of the wilderness to repeat and surpass his success at chancellorsville his confidence communicated itself to his command and ewell moved down the pike in high spirits taking care not to get too far in advance of hill on the plank road and both of them, being warned not to bring on a general engagement into Longstreet, who was hurrying up from Gordonsville, should arrive. Ewell's force came into collision with Warren's advance early in the morning, and Meade at once ordered the Fifth Corps to attack, and sent word to Hancock to hold his troops where they were, at Todd's Tavern, until further developments. Sedgwick was directed to go in on Warren's right. In this manner began the mutual slaughter of the wilderness, on a scene the strangest ever chosen by man or by destiny, for the field of a great battle. The primeval forest had been cut away in former years to serve the needs of mines and furnaces in the neighborhood. Those industries had declined and perished, and now the whole region, left to itself, had been covered with a wild and shaggy growth of scrub oak, dwarf pines, and hazel thicket, woven together by trailing vines and briars. Into this dense jungle the troops of Warren plunged, and were instantly lost to sight of their commanders and of each other. They fought under terrible disadvantages, deprived of the view of their comrades to the left and right, not knowing what obstacles or dangers would confront them at every step they made through the dismal chaparral. On the other hand, the Confederates, being in position, had every advantage of this strange situation. Unseen and silent, they could await the approach of the Federal troops, whose every movement was betrayed by the noise of their march, and could thus deliver the first and most murderous volley. But in spite of these disadvantages, Warren's troops, under Griffin, went gallantly forward on the turnpike, and drove parts of Ewell's corps back in confusion. The Confederate general, John M. Jones, was killed at this point, endeavoring to rally his troops. Early's division was brought forward, however, and the national advance was checked. General Wadsworth, pushing his way forward on Griffin's left, 
with no guide through the dense brake but a compass mistook his direction and wheeling too far to the right exposed his left wing to a withering fire from the enemy's front his veteran troops fell back without orders crawford's division though fighting hard became isolated and was drawn back and nearly the whole line was forced to give ground neither party on account of the nature of the country could follow up these momentary successes on each side the soldiers hastily entrenched themselves in every position they assumed there could be no ensemble in such a fight a series of detached and sanguinary skirmishes took place all day between the forces of warren and ewell and sedgwick's sixth corps coming up in the afternoon made a lodgment on the extreme right after a sharp fight in which the confederate general leroy a stafford was killed on the left general getty had established himself on the orange plank road at the crossing of the brock road and his skirmishers having become engaged with the advance of hill's corps he entrenched and waited for hancock hill knowing that longstreet was on the way to his relief proceeded with great caution hancock riding at full speed arrived in person at getty's position about noon and within two hours some of his troops came up and were put in position burney on the right then mott and gibbon barlow remained on the left of the line where in one of the rare clearings of the forest the artillery was posted as getty had informed hancock as soon as he arrived that an attack from hill might momentarily be expected hancock ordered breastworks to be thrown up all along his line which with the marvellous dexterity the troops had acquired was a matter of minutes between four and five o'clock getty advanced to the attack under orders from general meade hancock sent burney in on his right and mott on his left and a savage fight instantly ensued the musketry hancock says was continuous and deadly along the entire line his troops guided by little more than their own valiant hearts pushed steadily through the dismal wood and the treacherous bogs in front of them and though decimated by the bullets of unseen enemies in the jungle they made their way inch by inch driving hill's troops everywhere before them until upon the gloom of the wilderness settled the deeper darkness of night an hour more of daylight says humphreys and he hill would have been driven from the field hancock's losses were of course severe general alexander hayes one of his best officers was killed getty and colonel samuel s carroll though grievously wounded refused to leave the fight wadsworth was sent to take part in this action and forced his way as far as he could through the forest not far enough however to connect with hancock wilson with his cavalry division was at the same time hotly engaged with a force under rosser at todd's tavern being reinforced by gregg they drove the confederates over corbin's bridge and beyond at the close of this laborious but indecisive day general grant feeling the necessity of getting the first blow at the enemy before longstreet should arrive ordered me to prepare an assault on the left for half-past four in the morning general meade in consideration of the exhaustion of the troops suggested a later hour and five o'clock was adopted burnside was ordered to be on the road at two o'clock so as to come to the front and participate in the advance at dawn his presence was greatly needed in the gap between warren and hancock the fighting began at five o'clock on both wings wright of sedgwick's corps attacked the works on ewell's left with great vigor but was repulsed warren was also unsuccessful in his attempt on the entrenched lines in his front better's success at first attended hancock he could not know by what road longstreet would approach and did not think best therefore to bring his whole force into action on his front 
barrow's fine division was detained on the extreme left to guard against an approach from that direction and several times during the day hancock's attention was directed to his left by false alarms but in spite of this his attack along the plank road was made with prodigious energy and skill and aided by wadsworth on the right he came near destroying lee's right wing after desperate fighting the confederate line was broken at all points and driven more than a mile in confusion through the forest general grant thought afterwards that if the nature of the ground could have permitted hancock to see the rout of his enemy and to take advantage of it lee could not have recovered himself confederate accounts do not vary far from this colonel venable of lee's staff says the danger was great and general lee sent his trusted adjutant colonel w h taylor back to parker's door to get the trains ready for a movement to the rear but hancock's ranks were so torn and disordered by the fierce charge through the chaparral that they were compelled to halt to adjust their formations and before this could be accomplished longstreet arrived a tower of strength in himself not to speak of his fresh battalions the fruit of the morning's work which had begun so well could not be gathered general burnside's progress through the matted undergrowth of the woods was toilsome and slow although his corps did good service in the afternoon he came into position too late to assist in the morning's advance hancock's left which was waiting for an attack from the left was of little help to the main body on the turnpike and when a little before noon longstreet advanced in two columns which struck burney's tired troops in front and flank at the same moment they were unable to hold the ground they had gained in spite of the conspicuous bravery of hancock and his utmost efforts to rally his troops in spite of the devotion of general wadsworth who fell in front of his command his gray hairs crimsoned with his blood the whole line was forced back to the entrenchments they had left in the morning longstreet was advancing intent upon seizing the brock road when an accident occurred like that which brought stonewall jackson to his death a year before in the same forest longstreet was riding with his staff down the plank road in company with general micah jenkins who commanded the brigade in advance they were mistaken for federal cavalry by some of his own men who had come in on burney's left and a volley from the bushes killed jenkins and severely wounded longstreet again by the same curious fatality did lee's right arm fall shattered by his side the confederate advance was checked hancock now safe behind his entrenchments sent a brigade under colonel daniel leisure to sweep along his whole front from left to right combing the woods for the enemy he met with only a few who fell back without fighting general grant not in the least dismayed by his ill fortune at three o'clock ordered another advance on the enemy at six but in this he was anticipated by lee who directed in person a furious attack on hancock shortly after four this was repulsed after heavy fighting in which the woods and part of the breastworks took fire the enemy gained no advantage anywhere except for a moment at a point where some of jenkins men eager to avenge their fallen general rushing through the flames seized a part of the burning works from which however they were speedily driven by colonel carroll the day closed with an attack by general john b gordon of early's division upon the union right where the brigades of generals shaler and seymour were thrown into some confusion losing several hundred prisoners the two generals being among the number exaggerated rumors of this mishap soon spread through the army and it may be said survived long afterwards general wright however immediately restored order withdrawing his line somewhat and early seeing only the confusion of his own troops was more anxious to secure himself than to pursue it was not until the next morning that he discovered the ground he had gained 
on the morning of the seventh a profound silence brooded over the desolate space between the two armies neither appeared in the humor to renew the struggle each had suffered frightfully more desperate fighting says grant has not been witnessed on this continent than that of the fifth and sixth of may the national pickets and skirmishers were pushed forward all along the front they found the enemy everywhere retired behind his trenches a strong reconnaissance ordered by meade about noon had no effect in bringing him out an assault by the union army on the confederate works was needless and injudicious at half-past six in the morning grant drew up his orders for the march by the left flank to spotsylvania the reasons he gives for this movement are one the apprehension that lee might hastily retire upon richmond and crush butler who according to news received that day had reached city point two the hope that by a swift movement he might get between richmond and lee and thus secure a battle on more open ground he was not without hope that lee might attack again in the afternoon but each side had apparently experience enough of the other's entrenchments and the afternoon wore away in quiet the only serious fighting this day was at todd's tavern where sheridan attacked the entire cavalry force of stuart and inflicted upon him a severe defeat driving him a long distance on the spotsylvania and catharpin roads the trains were set in motion about three o'clock and the army began its flank movement soon after dark but general lee had observed the movement of the trains in the afternoon and not being certain whether grant was moving to the left or falling back to fredericksburg he ordered longstreet's corps now under command of r h anderson to march to spotsylvania in the morning to operate on the right flank of his enemy anderson transcended his orders with a success due partly to accident and partly to his excess of zeal finding the woods in his route on fire and no suitable place to bouviac he pushed to spotsylvania during the night and thus it came about that warren's corps arriving in the neighborhood of the courthouse the next morning after a laborious march which had been delayed as much by the difficulties of the road as by the confederate cavalry found themselves confronted by longstreet's veteran corps in position both generals were grievously disappointed for grant had hoped to pass beyond spotsylvania in his night march and lee who on the evening before had seen nothing to convince him that grant was retiring had changed his mind completely on the morning of the eighth and telegraphed exultantly to richmond the enemy has abandoned his position and is moving toward fredericksburg this army is in motion on his right flank and our advance is now at spotsylvania courthouse his delusion was further shown by his ordering early to pursue by the brock road which he imagined entirely clear a route which early at once found impossible and which he says would have led him through grant's entire army yet so strange are the chances of war this flagrant error inured to lee's advantage he had succeeded favored by his own mistake and a fortunate disobedience of orders in his lieutenant in placing himself squarely across the path of the army of the potomac the sanguinary work of the wilderness was all to be done over again lee's position at spotsylvania was even stronger than his former one the country was more undulating there were more accidents of terrain to be taken advantage of and he employed the precious hours while the army of the potomac was coming up to turn every hill and knoll about the place into an almost impregnable fortress lee when he found that grant was not on the way to the rear attempted no offensive movement and during two days grant occupied himself in bringing his army into position in front of the confederate works and preparing for the desperate struggle he saw before him to free himself from annoyance from lee's cavalry he ordered sheridan to cut loose from the army of the potomac to go south by the rebel right flank 
so as to draw after him the confederate mounted force to do all the harm possible to the railroads and stores in lee's rear and then to communicate with butler on the james replenish his supplies and rejoin grant by whatever road should at the time seem practicable early on the morning of the ninth sheridan rode away on the most formidable and important cavalry expedition of the war he soon got past the right flank of lee's infantry and drew after him as was intended the main body of the rebel horse custer's brigade went to beaver dam station on the virginia central road of which he destroyed ten miles a large amount of rolling stock and supplies and recaptured some four hundred union prisoners who were on the way to richmond sheridan himself crossed the south anna at ground squirrel bridge on the tenth and the next day pushed on towards richmond jeb stuart by that time seeing the folly of the stern chase had by desperate riding made a detour and succeeded in concentrating a great part of his forces at the yellow tavern on the brook pike six miles due north of the city sheridan promptly attacked him merritt wilson and custer leading the assault with equal gallantry and success while gregg defeated an attack made by james b gordon upon sheridan's rear this was one of the fiercest cavalry fights of the war and one of the most important in results stuart and gordon were killed and the confederate horse were so roughly handled that they never again met the national cavalry on equal terms sheridan pursuing fitzhugh lee's division towards richmond passed through the outer line of fortifications and in his own opinion might have entered the city but rightly judging that he could not sustain himself there with cavalry alone he recrossed to the north side of the chickahominy and after another brisk engagement with a force which made a sortie from the confederate works he made his way to the james where general butler supplied his wants he remained there for three days and then started on the seventeenth to rejoin grant which he succeeded in doing without further adventures on the twenty fourth of may End of chapter fourteen